Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Stephanie Larson to tell us all about her book titled What It Feels Like, Visceral Rhetoric and the Politics of Rape Culture, published by Penn State Press in 2021. This is a fascinating book. This is an important book that helps unpack why rape is still such a big problem and why we have trouble communicating about it, why we have trouble um, taking people to court about it, convicting people, essentially why this continues to be such a problem. Um, The book does a lot of important investigation, makes a lot of helpful contributions in terms of how we can think about this. Um, And generally, I think it's a book that a lot of people are going to find interesting and helpful. So Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for having me. Before we dive into the book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure. So I am a professor of English, but I specialize in rhetoric and and more plainly, I'm interested in, in communication and writing. How do we communicate about things? Uh, I, I chose to write this book for a lot of reasons. It, it took me quite a while to actually um, commit to writing about sexual violence. I have a, a history of sexual violence myself. And in grad school, I sort of wrestled with whether or not I wanted to, to take that on as a kind of object of study of sorts. Um, but I was writing my dissertation, which the book is uh, builds off of, sort of pre-Nasser, pre-Weinstein, pre-Me Too, um, pre this kind of surge in public discourse about uh, rape culture, if we want to call it that, or sexual violence. And uh, the topic of rape and sexual assault really hit mainstream audiences. I think dinner table conversations were taking it up in ways that were uh, quite new. I think um, it revived that that discourse in in some ways. And so I was really interested uh, to know more, Uh, really interested to think about how are everyday people talking about this in ways that complicate questions of justice or questions of believability. So one thing I'll kind of mention to help uh, audiences get a sense for how rhetoricians think about this, Janelle Johnson is a a rhetorical scholar, and and she's really good at emphasizing that rhetoricians or those who study rhetoric, um, they don't study what something is per se, but rather what it means or what it comes to symbolize through various discourses, events, people, and institutions. And so so I'm really interested to think about what does it mean to be a victim? Uh, What does it mean to testify to your own experiences? with violence? Um, how do we believe or fail to believe victims? And, and what are the kinds of consequences of those failures? That makes a lot of sense that that kind of is what made this book happen. Having read it, I'm like, oh, okay, I get the backstory. So a very helpful start for us. Um, on a kind of big picture level, what are the main questions that the book asks? Sure. So I think uh, at a at a really broad level, I'm I'm really trying to think about 
how do we talk about rape in legal, medical, institutional, and public context? That's sort of a broad question that I try to hold on to throughout the book. But more specifically, I'm interested in thinking about what happens when we privilege masculine perspectives to understand rape in those various contexts, whether they be legal, medical, or institutional. Uh, and how do those perspectives sort of complicate public understandings of rape? Uh, so on the one hand, uh, I have a chapter in the book that looks at rape kits that I think sort of illustrates this uh, question uh, well. Um, in the chapter, I'm interested to interrogate this presumption of objective evidence that um, circulates in how rape kits are talked about and how they're sort of seen as valid or kind of more authentic than testimonies. Uh, the, the idea that DNA is presumably more believable than a woman's testimony, I see that as a kind of masculine perspective, a sort of privileging of what we might think of as kind of hard evidence or science at the expense of believing people. I think the rape kits are really interesting because they uh, there's a lot of baggage around rape kits in the United States. There are quite a few backlogs um, of rape kits in, in various kind of police uh, police centers. And um, but there's also at the same time a lot of kind of privileging of that type of technology when it comes to understanding rape. Now, overwhelmingly, victims know they're rapists. And so the idea that you would need DNA evidence to kind of confirm or validate a testimony, um, to me, that's what I'm trying to kind of get at with this question of privileging masculine perspectives. Um, there's one flip side. I think the first half of the book tries to deal with that question, what happens when we privilege masculine perspectives. The latter two chapters in the book are really looking at what happens when people use their bodies in ways that challenge these perspectives. And so um, about five, 10 years ago, there was a kind of um, a few different protests that were happening that help kind of shift the needle in public discourse about rape. So uh, Elma Sokowitz's uh, Mattress on My Back performance uh, that happened on Columbia's, Columbia University's campus. And then um, Chanel Miller, uh, her victim impact testimony or victim impact statement that she gave during the Brock Turner trial, I think kind of really gavelanted public audiences, gallivanted public audiences in, in ways that kind of drew their attention. What I'm interested to know in these types of performances, how these folks are sort of bringing audiences back into their bodies as a way to challenge um, what they think of as what counts as rape or what counts as sexual assault. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating way to bring us into um, and raise really a number of the questions that now I want to tell, ask you so much more about. Um, so thank you for giving us that great overview. Um, one of the things that I'm always most interested in books, especially books that help us think through complicated things, is when authors um, help us create new language for this. So can you take us through what you mean by the term visceral rhetoric? and how you define it, how you developed that definition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am building off of uh, a number of kind of key rhetorical scholars who are turning to things like affect and embodiment and feeling to try and understand its relationship to rhetoric, to persuasion and, and communication. And so I define visceral rhetoric as a theory of communication of sorts that invites audiences to respond with and through the body. And so I'm very interested in these kinds of 
fleshy, corporeal, material, and sensory components that that I really see as kind of forces of rhetoric. They sort of fuel persuasion in ways that work with and through our, our bodies and our, our kinds of attachments to others. Uh, so I can give you an example of this and then maybe back up and say a little bit about how this relates to other, other scholarship. Um, the Larry Nassar case, which uh, audiences may be more familiar with, is a kind of good example. I use it in the opening of my book to help illustrate what I think of as visceral rhetoric. So um, if you're uh, unfamiliar, uh, Larry Nassar was the USA gymnastics doctor who um, was tried for dozens of sexual assault cases that took place over a number of years. Um, and, and that case, similar to the Weinstein case, I think, kind of captivated public attention in new in new ways. What's interesting to me about the Nassar case is that the judge invited um, dozens of victims into her courtroom to give testimony, give victim impact statements about the abuse they endured by Nassar. And so um, people really watched these testimonies take place and then, of course, saw them circulate in various media um, conversations. But these young women were really giving testimony to the kinds of pain they endured by NASA, really bringing audiences into what happened at the time of the assault, um, trying to uh, compel audiences to sort of feel a form of the pain that they felt during after the assault. And so as a rhetorician, I'm really interested in, in moments like this because I do think they make us feel something in our bones, right? We have these sorts of phrases like I, I could sense it in my gut, I could feel it in my bones. Um, but I think we could all uh, think back to a time when we would feel our hearts race, our palms sweat, um, our teeth grind. Like these are moments when our bodies are reacting to something, right? They're reacting to some event that's sort of taking place. And I see that as a kind of a visceral rhetoric at work, this sort of felt sense of certain certainty, uh, which is a really kind of key component of persuasion, right? It's so critical to believing someone in the first place. Um, so I can say a little bit more about the field, if it's helpful, um, how this how this theory kind of piggybacks some some more kind of contemporary scholarship that's taking place, or what it what it means for judgment, what it means for rhetoric more broadly. But but sure. essentially, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so I think um, one thing that the book I am really committed in sort of interrogating, I think across my work, is this sort of unstated desire for rationality. Uh, I do think that within rhetorical studies, there is a kind of unstated commitment to rationality. And I also think in public, the way we evaluate speakers, there's a kind of unstated um, desire for rationality, the idea that we sort of speak clearly, quote unquote, and I'm using quotes there, or the idea that we sort of speak without emotion. Um, but rarely does that happen. And I think a lot of those, uh, those ideas are kind of coded and racialized and gendered, um, and really seek to kind of center a white man speaking well. So the idea of visceral rhetoric is an attempt to kind of challenge that thinking, um, challenge the idea that judgment could only be conceived of as a rational enterprise located sort of distinctly in our minds and assessed through words. Uh, visceral rhetoric really is trying to understand how judgment is a process that forms deep within our gut. Um, I kind of have a line in the book that's something to the effect of audiences can't simply hear the words that rape happened, rather they need to feel it. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, movements, protests that were happening in the last five, 
five or so years when I was kind of writing the book helped us understand that that idea. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And relates, in fact, to um, kind of links together, I suppose, two things you've now mentioned, the idea of kind of the importance of the rape kit and that particular form of knowledge being so privileged um, and this idea of feeling things in one's gut. Um, mm-hmm. And in a lot of, you know, we've so I kind of want to bring them together because you talk about them, you do bring them together in the book, um, embodied forms of meaning. It's not just the observer hearing these things and going, okay, I have this really gut feeling that I'm believing things. It, it goes really beyond that um, and calls into question some of these privileging of things like rape kits. How and why have embodied forms of meaning, kind of what do we mean by that? And how have they been ignored and silenced in these processes of public debate, of law? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and, and, I think part of uh, one of the kind of challenges I, I face in the book or questions that people will ask me about my work is what happens when visceral rhetorics fail, right? Like what happens when um, they don't compel the kind of feeling that you're interested in theorizing or, or what happens when people sort of deny that, that feeling. And I really do believe that that is a uh, shows the power of how committed we are to rationality as a kind of white, masculine, able-bodied form of communicating. Um, there's an idea that that a great rhetorician is a kind of quote-unquote good man speaking well, and I think that that idea is centuries old and it pervades today. The idea that we look a certain way, we communicate a certain way, uh, are just sort of ways to reject or keep women, keep queer people, keep people of color in their in their place, so to speak, and restore a sense of white masculine order. Now, of course, um, the Kavanaugh case that I write about is an example, if, if folks are familiar with um, when he uh, was uh, during his hearings for Supreme Court justice, a lot of people in public talked about how sort of overwhelmingly emotional he was. And so it doesn't I think visceral rhetoric, visceral rhetoric helps us understand how certain bodies, right? The body is read in ways that is going to influence how people perceive it. So, of course, Kavanaugh was kind of like oozing with anger uh, in, in ways that was quite provocative and, and um, certainly caught public attention. However, of course, he became a Supreme Court justice. And so uh, it, it sort of worked in his favor. Uh, one thing I tell my students is that. Um, our bodies, like the body of your professor is going to communicate something before that person even speaks, right? You could imagine yourself in a sort of large lecture, like that person who walks on stage, stands behind a podium, if they can stand, um, is going to tell audiences something about, is going to shape audiences' perception of credibility, of, of how good of a professor this, this person is going to be. And so that's also part of what I'm, I'm trying to think about uh, in the book. How are we really committed to thinking about persuasion uh, as something that's spoken or written? What about all these other forms of communication that make meaning, that circulate meaning, um, that might be kind of outside of our purview if we're defining rhetoric in a sort of limited way? So obviously we do have these expectations. We do have these visceral rhetorics, these embodied forms of knowledge, even if we don't privilege them, even if we don't kind of consider them forms of knowledge in a way that you're very helpfully challenging. Um, 
I'd love to get into some of what you talk about in the book in terms of kind of how did we get here? <laughs> um, because that's obviously an incredibly crucial piece to maybe not being here forever. So starting with the 1980s, why, in what ways, what was going on in the 1980s that was so formative for today's conception of rape and rape culture? Yeah, I think the 1980s are fascinating for lots of reasons, although I do want to be clear um, in, in the introduction, I, I tried to try to be clear in that when we define a rape culture, uh, we are bringing to mind certain events, right? And, and I want to bring to mind for readers the idea uh, that a rape culture stems, stems uh, has deep roots in the foundation of uh, a lot of colonized nations, but particularly the, the United States. The institution of slavery is, is quite literally built on and through sexual violence. Um, however, we don't think of the institution of slavery as a rape culture. And so that's kind of one question that uh, sort of haunts me throughout the book. Um, what counts as sexual violence? How do we understand certain acts of violence as rape, as sexual assault, and what happens when we don't. Um, that's part of what I'm trying to do, just to go back to your earlier question about visceral rhetorics. I think they help bring audiences back into their bodies to remind audiences of the violence people endure. So I'm getting a little aside here, but um, you know, part of what I'm interested in, in understanding is what counts to particular audiences as sexual violence or, or rape. The 1980s is sort of fascinating to me because culturally there's a lot going on, particularly in the United States. Um, and of course, we see a rising AIDS epidemic, the, the idea of like, just say no, anti-drug, this sort of fear of drugs, fear of disease. Um, all of these are sort, sorts of fears of difference, right? Um, different types of bodies infiltrating uh, the United States in, in particular. And people folded in the fear of sexual predators into things like immigration or uh, or gang violence or things of that nature. And so they really create or the 1980s helped sort of um, foment this idea of the stranger rapist lurking out there in society. Uh, it's in part why I start with that idea, because I think. Uh, people have largely thought of predators as strangers, as distant others, but overwhelmingly, um, that's not the case. Over 90% of victims know their rapists, they know what happened, right? And so it's this kind of larger discourse that's out there that's really complicating people who have experiences with people they know. Um, I just saw this just a couple of days ago. Uh, I saw a clip on Fox News about an anxiety at the border and the fear of rapists entering into our country, right? And so, of course, Donald Trump helped popularize this during his presidency, the, the fear of immigrant bodies as rapists sort of entering into the country. Um, and so this idea of the stranger rapist, I think, really takes grip in the 1980s. Um, and we see kind of strange bedfellows bed sort of taking place between um, conservatives and anti-rape activists, right, where they're both sort of using the case of sexual violence to kind of, quote unquote, crack down on crime, lock the borders, Um but again, I think that rhetoric is still really pervasive today. I, I think even in uh, the case of um, abortion rhetoric today, lots of people have been using fears of the border, fears of the, the stranger immigrant rapists to constitute anti-abortion legislation. 
Um, you know, if we just crack down on crime, if we lock the borders, rape wouldn't be a problem, we wouldn't need abortions. And so there's this real slipperiness in the discourse that happens. Um, and it sort of constitutes the idea that rapists are, are distant, unknown, um, you know, racialized bodies. And, um, and that participates in, the, in constituting the idea that victims don't know they're rapists, which is, is certainly untrue. And so the 1980s for me helps kind of concretize that idea that we're willing to fight against the sort of criminal stranger rapist, but we're not willing to um, call out the Trumps, the Kavanaugh's, the Nassars, right, who are these sort of white men who are, are seen as like, quote unquote, upstanding men, upstanding men of society. So, in fact, that idea of kind of what we are and are not willing to call out and the slipperiness of it is something you talk about with, I found a great term in the book uh, that really kind of pokes at this patriarchal spectrality. Can you take us through this? Um, I think there's a lot of great links with what you've told us already. Can you take us through this term and how you use this almost as a methodological approach? Sure. Yeah, I'm so glad you had that reaction. That chapter was admittedly one of the, the hardest ones for me to kind of wrap my head around because part of what I'm dealing with is how audiences imagine victims, how they imagine perpetrators. Um, you know, the the question of imagining or, or public memory uh, is very at home in rhetorical studies. How do you sort of call to mind ideas for audiences, right? Um, and so that's part of what I'm kind of piggybacking in that chapter. I am interrogating or investigating bystander campaigns, which became really popular during the Obama administration, um, which I was in college for part of this. Um, so I, I feel like I wrote that chapter very much thinking about kind of my own experience being a college student. I do think these campaigns are well intended, right? They're sort of, they run that idea of like, if you see something, say something. And uh, I, I do think bystander campaigns in a lot of ways really helped uh, again, revive or, bring, or call attention to the issue of sexual violence as a as a problem we should all care about, right? Um, one of the campaigns that I write about is One is Too Many. That was um, under the Obama administration, the Violence Against Women Act. And so uh, they're well-intended, I guess I'll say that. Um, but I do believe they rely on this idea of men saving women, right? And in doing so, they center white victims in need of saving. So in the same way that the chapter from the 1980s explores these anti-pornography um, debates and uh, looks at the ways that perpetrators are seen as racialized, seen as criminals, bystander campaigns, I think, participate in constituting victims as white women who are educated and in, in need of, of help, uh, which, of course, that trope. Um, has deep roots in the United States in particular through tied to the institution of slavery and the, the history of lynching in the United States, the idea that white women were at risk of being raped, right? And so I think um, a lot of the language used in bystander discourses is very familial, right? And so, you know, Joe Biden helped reinstate VAWA during um, Obama's presidency, and uh, he would often say things like, these are your daughters, these are your wives, your nieces, um, making it very difficult to see undocumented victims, low-income victims, victims of color, victims basically not on college campuses, right? And so again, here's a moment where public's kind of 
really came together to try and understand sexual violence. And a lot of attention was raised surrounding the issue, but it really centered the college campus in ways that complicated how we understand acts of sexual violence that don't happen on college campuses. Of course, it's certainly a problem. um, And it's not to say we shouldn't care about what happens on college campuses, but I think it helped sort of narrow publics to only thinking about certain types of victims um, in light of these campaigns. So I found your discussion of the bystander um, discourses really interesting. Um, I think we're a similar age, so some of the kind of experiencing it in college was probably a shared thing. Um, And the idea of kind of this being such a focus on that's who the victim is, is a white woman at university um, kind of going out with friends and something goes wrong. But I hadn't really realized, despite being exposed to so much of this, hadn't really realized until I read the book kind of how much these discourses are focusing us on kind of, as you said, one particular kind of victim, but also not talking about the perpetrator, like at all. So what else are they doing in terms of where the attention is or is not focused? Yeah. I think that's that's absolutely right. It sort of centers the the helper, so to speak, the bystander as someone who can intervene. But the sort of question of, of raping people in the first place gets a little obscured, maybe in the process. Um, I think the other thing that by that a kind of complicated aspect of, of bystander discourses um, is that they don't. I don't. Part of what's I think they're trying to. I don't know, maybe intervening is the idea of shame, right? And and but I don't think they undo the aspect of shame in the first place. I think they they still rely on the idea that victims are need are in need of help. They're in need of saving. Um, and so I'm I'm kind of trying to call to mind that type of imagining that's that's sort of propagated by bystander discourses. Uh, I also don't know if they disentangle blame from binge drinking culture, right? Which is often how this gets talked about on college campuses. Um, You know, the idea that like you shouldn't get that drunk because what could happen to you if if you were? Uh, And of course, like no matter how drunk you get or no matter how much you drink, you never asked for it, right? That's the sort of slipperiness I think that happens on college campuses. So I'm not sure what kind of, I think their attempts to educate people to help, I don't think their attempts to sort of disentangle questions of blame and responsibility from kind of cultural realities on college campuses. Hmm. Hmm, that, ma- that makes sense. Um, I'd love to move away from the bystander discourse for a moment and actually come back a little bit to um, something you mentioned towards the beginning about rape kits. And you you have already told us a bit about this, but I think there is such a discrepancy between how rape kits are discussed in sort of policy, in news versus the more realistic picture that you paint in the book that I'd like to make sure we do spend more time on it, um, if you don't mind. So can you tell us more about how rape kits, kind of what they do? what knowledge they do and don't privilege, how they are part of this silencing of visceral knowledge and experience? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And you can t- stop me if I'm sort of too in the weeds here, but um, part of what I'm thinking about in relation to, to rape kits is the idea of proofs. And so 
um, rhetoricians are very interested in evidentiary proofs. There's, there are sorts of two ways of thinking about proofs, the idea of artistic proofs, which are rhetorical, um, and then inartistic proofs, which are thought of as sort of a rhetorical. And so testimony uh, is thought of and framed as a kind of rhetorical enterprise. It's something you create. It's something you make. Um, DNA, on the other hand, is, is thought of as a kind of inartistic proof something that sort of like just exists a priori that can be sort of found. Um, we might even frame it as a kind of idea of fact, right, of sort of true or false. Uh, and so I think the rape kits uh, really complicate how we value testimonies because the role of evidence in DNA is seen as, as far superior, right? We could authenticate what happened through the kit. We could authenticate based on DNA evidence what happened in ways that would, would uh, be seen as superior to a victim testifying to what happened to their body, right? Um, so that's that's what I'm really interested to think about uh, with the kind of rising support of rape kits. Uh, and again, I think they're really complicated because overwhelmingly victims know they're rapists. And so what purpose does the rape kit serve? Of course, it's, it's also a very grueling process that um, someone has to undergo if they receive a, a sexual assault forensic exam. Um, their bodies are quite literally like mined for data. Um, and that's a kind of uh, form of containment that I'm interested in, in sort of theorizing in the book, the ways that um, medical science and medical institutions are trying to contain the body's evidence in ways that will help us understand what happened, again, in ways that are superior to forms of testimony. But it can take hours. You know, these processes can take hours. Um, hair can be sort of pulled from your body. You can be put under light. You can be sort of scraped. Um, of course, it, they there's a much more sort of uh, potentially triggering way to even think about the, the ways that women's internal bodies are kind of excavated for evidence. Uh, but again, all of this is in search of DNA, right? Uh, it's in search of DNA to sort of validate who did what. <laughs> and um, the even the perpetrator may not even be lying about the sexual act that happened, they may be lying about the fact that it counted as rape. So what does DNA do in that moment? I'm not sure it does sort of very much. It's very hard to make arguments about um, bodily evidence from the kit, but it is, DNA is sort of seen as certainty, right? It's sort of seen as all knowing in that way. Um, so I think when we prioritize rape kits at the expense of, of testimonies, we, we once again begin to narrow in on a very uh, limited understanding of rape and, and who it affects and how it happens. Um, I think rape is, is a lot murkier than rape kits would presume or like us to believe and that the issue of consent right, is much murkier than rape kits would presume. Of course, it, but I do think it comes down to this idea of inartistic proofs. It's it's all knowing. DNA is all knowing in ways that uh, testimony is fallible. And yet, that's as you mentioned briefly at the beginning. That's no longer the only sort of information that's being brought up in these cases, or at least in some of these cases. There are push. There is pushback. Really, there are kind of other ways people are trying to say, "Hey, look." <laughs> don't just listen to that listen to me can you tell us more about what you term visceral counter publicity and its potential yeah yeah so this chapter um looks at emma sokowitz their uh public performances and um chanel miller 
uh, her victim impact statement, like I mentioned, I think Sokowitz's case is really fascinating to me because it's a case of sexual violence where Sokowitz is trying to train audiences to understand how an act, a sexual act began consensual and then violently began, became rape, right? Sort of so that that shift from consent to non-consent. I think this is really hard for people to understand. Um, and then this is where we hear all kinds of horrible tropes like, well, she asked for it or it was her fault. And so it's very hard for people to understand that um, we could be in relationships with people where certain acts, sexual acts have been consensual and some of them have been un- not consensual, right? And so visceral counter, visceral counter publicity, again, is trying to bring audiences back into their own bodies as a way to recognize the violence sort of being done to another. Um, Chanel Miller's testimony, once again, it's sort of very vivid, very visceral, and she's trying to retrain public audiences in her case about what counts as rape. So Miller's case is a little bit different than Solkowitz's in in that um, the court really uh, focused in on understanding what happened to her as uh, sexual assault in a lesser degree than rape. Uh, and the law certainly centers in on the idea of uh, penetration, of sort of cis-hetero penetration as what constitutes rape. Um, and Miller, in her testimony, I know this is a little um, hard to talk about, really tried to retrain audiences to understand what happened to her as a form of deep violation, but one that didn't fall under the, the law's definition of rape. Does that make sense? Is that, am I kind of walking through that in a way that's helpful? Yep. Yeah. So I think they're, uh, once again, they're bringing audiences quite literally to acts of violence that happen to them to help understand these instances that often fall out of public perception of what counts as rape. Um, And Miller's to, you know, to Miller's credit, I think she, that, that was a really powerful testimony that she gave and it did help move the needle. The judge was sort of removed and um, California did change some of its laws regarding the standards of um, sexual assault and rape. There's, of course, there's different in the United States, there's different um, uh, kind of tiers, right? Uh, I guess to put it sort of bluntly about what counts as sexual assault versus what counts as rape. And and Miller kind of helped move the needle on that. Uh, and I think in part that's because of the the kinds of embodied ways of, of embodied forms of knowledge that she shared during her um, impact, victim impact statement that helped audiences understand violence as violence. Hmm. Thank you for taking us through those examples. I would, I think this is probably a good moment to point out that obviously what we're doing here is discussing the main points of the book, but for all the details, for tracing all of this out intricately, um, listeners should really pick up the book itself to get into more detail about it. Um, but I think that's a really helpful kind of introduction really to these efforts and kind of what they might lead to. And speaking of things that they might lead to or kind of other sorts of potential. Can you tell us a little bit about what you write in the book about the Me Too movement um, and how this might be part of a kind of wider feminist use of lists? Yeah. So the last chapter um, was written very much just shortly after Me Too. So I was um, really kind of inspired and caught up in what was what was going on around me. 
between the and and trying to think about the relationship between testimony and narrative, right? So Miller's um, testimony that she gives is is sort of pages long. It's it's a, it takes a narrative form, um, and uh, what what was kind of interesting about Miller's testimony is that lots of people did share it in full. So it was shared on the floor of Congress. Um, there was a CNN anchor who read. Um, large portions of it uh, over the air, uh, but it's a long narrative. And so uh, I'm interested to think about how Me Too kind of takes a very different shape. I think these are still narratives, but they're um, what I see as kind of lists. They're intentionally short um, testimonies of sexual assault that help kind of build an archive of sorts that really aims for scale. And so this is where the idea of magnitude is really um, important for me and important for this theory. Uh, I think the idea of Me Too captivating public audiences was overwhelming uh, in lots of ways because you were sort of scrolling through um, you, you know, it's again, it's very embodied. You're sort of using your finger to scroll through on Twitter or even Facebook, um, these hundreds of accounts of rape or sexual assault. And so statistics are shared all the time about sexual assault, but I'm not sure that they capture public outright outrage in a way that long lists of tweets did. Um, that's sort of a question that I'm interested to think about in that chapter. Uh, again, it's sort of like brought a level of believability in ways that long form narratives or statistics didn't seem to do. And so that's where I'm, I'm really interested in how that movement took shape as a kind of form of list making. Now, I think there are lots of caveats that, that I should say about Me Too and that others have certainly written um, more eloquently about. But of course, Me Too, again, helped constitute the idea of a white celebrity woman. I think um, this also kind of came off, came on the heels of the Oscars, I think, um, and the kind of Time's Up movement, at least in the United States, that um, like Reese Witherspoon and even Oprah were really uh, invested in uh, promoting. And then uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was certainly seen as a, as a kind of figurehead of Me Too. And that's not to diminish the, the work that those women did to help shift public attention. But I do think uh, it's not I don't want to suggest that Twitter is like a entirely democratic space that um, that helped us completely, you know, disentangle our ideas about victimhood and, and privilege. So I, I do think there are problems that Me Too, or there are problems that emerged in the Me Too movement. Uh, however, I do think the idea of lists drew public attention in ways that other forms of uh, persuasion maybe were not as successful at doing. Hmm. Really interesting. Um, and I think it's helpful to have the nuance of not like, yay, this is amazing, or oh no, right. this is horrible. It's like, no, 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 it's a lot more complicated than that. And yeah. it's that's okay. That's useful to talk about. Um, so thank you for that discussion, obviously here, but also in the book. If we then kind of zoom out and think about all of these different pieces that you've told us about and talked about in the book, how do you think we can seriously take the role and value of visceral rhetorics kind of in general in this discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think, I hope that visceral rhetorics helps us understand the profound role that feeling plays in persuasion, that feeling plays in judgment and certainty. 
I, I do think a lot of times, like I said, people will ask me, well, what happens when these types of rhetorics don't incite the kind of bodily reaction that you write about? Uh, and of course that happens. I actually, um, I wrote a version of the chapter on visceral counterpublicity. And I remember one of the reviewers asking me just that, like what happens when audiences don't have the kind of reaction that you're, that you're sort of writing about? Um, and I don't want to deny that that's a possibility, right? Um, you know, rhetoric is, is not, it's, it's an attempt to understand what's probable. And, and so I think it's, it's probable that people can have bodily reactions that might jolt them into sort of seeing the issue of rape culture in a new way. That's what I hope for visceral rhetorics, at least when it comes to the question of rape and sexual violence. Um, I think when we deny the role feeling plays, like I mentioned before, I think it shows us the power over the desire for rationality that we have, the desire to think that our mind controls our body, uh, when in reality, it's much more intertwined. It's, it's sort of much messier um, than the Cart Cartesian dualism would, would presume. So I think we have to be mindful of the assumptions that we make about feeling as inferior to rationality and what is being upheld when we desire rationality, right? Uh, I, I do think when we hold on to the idea that we should think rationally, it is, a, is an attempt to prioritize white, masculine, able-bodied ways of knowing and communicating. communicating. But I do think there's power in that old adage that we should trust our gut. Um, and I think that we should pay attention to what our bodies are trying to test are trying to tell us in these moments of uncertainty. Um, the fragility I see in visceral rhetorics is that they can also be weaponized against justice efforts. Um, you know, I think that I wrote my dissertation in the book during the Trump presidency, and um, and that was a really complicated time for me as, as someone trying to write about affect and embodiment, because of course, Trump and Trump really kind of mobilized publics through the idea of feeling fearful of, of strangers, right? If you feel scared of difference, then that person's probably a bad guy. Uh, but again, I think that shows the power of affect as a force for both good and for evil, right? I think either way, Feeling is central to these kinds of rhetorical enterprises, and I think we have to take them seriously. Mm. Again, a nuanced answer rather than kind of one or the other, uh, which is really helpful, even if it's maybe not the most immediately like, yay, everything will be solved. Right. <laughs> but we have ways forward. Um, speaking of ways forward, this book is thankfully available for people to go pick up and read, which also means it's off your desk. Um, is there anything you might be working on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic uh, that you'd like to highlight or give a preview of? Yeah, I am kind of working on two sort of related projects. The the first, the big one is I'm working on my second book right now, which is about sexual violence in higher education. Uh, that book is not so much interested in focusing solely on individuals who have been labeled survivors or perpetrators, but rather um, I'm looking at how networks of violence emerge and complicate how people quite literally work in academic institutions. And so I'll give like a self plug. I uh, have an article out in the Harvard Educational Review that talks about the labor of sexual violence for faculty. Um, and so part of what I'm trying to think about in that 
book is what is the issue of care labor in the university and how are people put in positions of helping vulnerable members of the university in ways that are obscured by institutional structures or institutional procedures like in the United States, Title IX. Um, so I'm interested in the question of labor and a kind of care economy in the university in, in that book project. And then I mentioned this briefly, but I'm interested to see, uh, I'm sort of like many people, uh, interested to see how the next sort of presidential election will unfold, uh, particularly in relationship to what's going on with abortion uh, in the United States and, and reproductive justice. So I'm hoping to kind of think a little bit more carefully about how sexual violence has kind of emerged in those conversations, like what I was saying about uh, the anti-pornography debates that I wrote about for what it feels like. I do think there's another kind of strange bedfellows thing that's going on. Uh, in terms of anti-abortion legislation and sexual violence advocates, where people are trying to draw attention to the stranger rapist in ways that are uh, really quite unproductive and um, and very damaging for very vulnerable people's lives. So that's those are kind of two projects that I'm excited about right now. They both sound very exciting. Thank you for sharing that little update or a preview with us. Um, and of course, while you're working on those projects, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, What It Feels Like, Visceral Rhetoric and the Politics of Rape Culture, published by Penn State Press. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. It was a pleasure.